so many people hate their own response to the following question. So what does your company actually do? Because in this moment, my friend, you have three options, okay? Number one, pitch slap your prospect. Number two, fumble your way through a long-winded response. And number three, deliver a punchy elevator story that sparks intrigue. Now, if you're nodding your head at number three, but you're like, hold up, I don't even know where to begin, then hey, don't worry. I've got your back. All right, head on down to www.theraviregiani.com forward slash your elevator story to unlock your very own free elevator story script, template, and guide. Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, let's get into it. Sales onboarding programs. Why do some suck and why do others ramp up reps? in record time? Why do some bore reps to death and why do others result in high engagement and a tangible transformation? And why do some feel like a simple box ticking exercise? And why do others focus on the exact skills required to move the needle forward in a recession? Now, listen, people, I don't have all the answers, but my guest today, Whitney Newman, manager of global sales enablement at Databricks does. Now she's going to help us unpack how to create an impactful sales onboarding program from scratch. Welcome to the show, my friend. What's good? Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Ravi. I'm excited to be here. Excited to talk about some sales onboarding. Well, you know what I'm excited to know? more about from you is not just the sales onboarding piece, but what was Jen Allen really like to work with, right? So she, you've heard that previous episode of us. We have a a relationship where we troll each other to the world, but then behind closed doors, we're really close friends. But I want to know, what was she like to work with? Does she live up to all the hype? Tell me, tell me. Ravi, I'm under a strict strict NDA, um, (laughs) so I'm not allowed to speak about Jen Allen. (laughs) No, she's she's amazing. She's amazing. She was such a fantastic seller and I've loved to just kind of see how she's transitioned her career and she's doing podcasts and she's just kind of inspiring everybody and I love it. I said to her on my show and she was on a couple of weeks ago, I said, listen, my job is to get you cancelled by the end of this episode. And she said, all right, okay, I'm still waiting for one person to say something bad about us. I can go, ha, there we have it. There we have it. But yeah, still waiting. Still waiting. Not going to get it from me. I know. Not going to get it from me. She's amazing. I know. I know. But anyway, listen, my friend, let's talk about you. So you've done so many different things throughout, I suppose, your career, you know, studying Italian at university, working in public relations, then heading on down to companies like Bloomberg and Challenger to really develop their enablement programs. You've had such a rich and diverse amount of experience. What I'd love to know is what's one part of your origin story that the audience needs to know about in order to gain more context on who you are today? Wow. My origin story. I feel like 
you know, I'm, I'm in a Marvel movie. I don't know. That's a really good question. I think kind of what you mentioned is probably important to know is for a long time, I don't think I knew what I wanted to do or what I was really passionate about, you know, not to age myself, but grew up watching The Hills. And I thought I wanted to be Lauren Conrad at working in PR and all the glitz and the glam. And so studied communications in college to get to that. I tried it, realized quickly that that was that wasn't for me. It wasn't really what I was interested in, passionate about. And so I tried a couple of different things in my career early on and then I kind of fell into sales. And I fell into, you know, everybody's favorite role, the BDR role, and I did that at CEB with Jen Allen. And once I got into that, I realized that is what I'm more passionate about. Actually working with customers, having to almost do like some of that research behind the scenes, figure out what are the pains within these organizations? How can we kind of uniquely fit our solutions to what they're experiencing? And then from there, I've just kind of fallen in love with sales. And I've done a couple of different things within the sales world. But Yeah, I think it's just that I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then it took me a lot of different jobs to get here. And I'm really happy now with kind of where my career is going and and what I'm doing. Well, that's awesome. I think everybody can relate to that in terms of figuring out who they are, really what's in alignment for them, and then finding themselves in a place where it really clicks in this current season of their life. And, you know, that's obviously happening to you right now, which is great. And I'll tell you what's great as well is I used to love the hills, like obsessed Ah. with the hills, right? Now, my wife and I watched the reboot, (laughs) right, on MTV. How bad, did you watch it? How bad was that? It's almost like I can't go back and watch it again (laughs) because it is like looking into a mirror of the early 2000s. And, <laughs> but it, it was just so good. That is gold television. It's where reality... <laughs> I should probably go back and watch it. It was so, it was so good back then. But, but I suppose every reality TV show has used that as inspiration, right? But the worst thing was, Whitney, is now watching it in terms of where they all are now, like maybe 20 years down the line or whatever it is, I was like, man, I'm old. Like I'm actually really Uh, old because yeah, this, no one knows. Like my cousins, younger, younger friends are like, yeah, who, what's the hills, man? And I'm like, okay, there we go. There we go. But anyway, let's forget reality TV and let's talk about the reality of onboarding programs today. So let's play a little game with me. Okay. Let's do a little scenario analysis or rather put you in the frame of you're no longer at Databricks for whatever reason. Okay. And you join a brand new organization and the leader says on day one, Whitney, we want you to build a new sales onboarding program from scratch. You got 90 days to do it. Have fun. So what would be your reaction to a question like that? Can it be done? Is it realistic? I would turn around and walk away. (laughs) I think it's, I think it's absolutely realistic. I think it's a great question and one that I, you know, don't have the perfect answer for because I don't think that there is a silver bullet or a one size fits all of kind of a world-class perfect sales onboarding program. Otherwise I think we'd all be doing it. And this wouldn't be a topic. That being said, I have 
gone through many iterations of sales onboarding programs at different companies and different industries. And I do think that there are a lot of lessons learned from that of what's gone well, what hasn't gone well, that I can kind of shed some light on some tips and tricks to kind of get yourself set up with at least a solid foundation in that first 90 days, realizing you're going to have to do a lot of different iterations. You're going to have to fail fast on a lot of topics to get it to that world-class stage. And on that point of topics, there's so many that are important to a seller and that we're not even speaking about, you know, an enterprise seller versus mid-market versus SME, you know, they're all going to have different skill sets and whatnot. So let's keep it general for simplicity. But what would you focus on and why? What would be the core areas that you would focus on and why? And if you don't say storytelling, we might have to end the show right now, but... (laughs) (laughs) storytelling being a huge topic for sure if i think about it sequentially of you know walking into the door at this new company i've been tasked with this huge project to build it from scratch i do think i'd want to start with just kind of a mindset because this is something that i've fallen victim to i still kind of have to check myself on this but when you join a new organization it's almost like you have to check your kind of pride at the door And I think it's also easy to come up with this perfect plan of what you think onboarding is going to look like at this new company based on all of the things that you've seen and experienced through past jobs and and trainings that you've built. And so being able to take that plan that you have in mind and kind of throw it out the window or be prepared to really change it. Gartner did a study a few years ago now that said by the time a salesperson gets in front of a customer, the customer is already 80% of the way through their purchase decision, right? And I think that that's pretty similar to this example. I think that, yes, you go through an interview with this company, right? You nail all the questions. They love your background. It's super relevant. I'm sure you put together this amazing 30, 60, 90 day plan that they love. But when you walk in the door, they probably are already about 80% of the way through what they actually want the onboarding to look like, the topics they want you to cover, how they want you to deliver the training, who needs to be involved. And so I think that it's just important to kind of flex with the company and realize you're going to have to do a lot of discovery at the beginning to uncover what it is that they, they're kind of already expecting because at the end of the day, they're your buyers, right? who you're selling to. It's a really good point around the mindset piece, checking the ego at the door and figuring out what they want and to reverse engineer that. So when you are doing discovery around that, figuring out what they want, what would be your process? Are you speaking to you know their best clients and customers by segment? Are you asking leadership certain questions of what success looks like? What What's your process? Yeah. And so I think when you think about it, the process and the steps of a sale are really similar to the process and the steps of building a sales onboarding program. So my end users, right, are going to be the sellers and sales leaders. Decision makers are probably going to be a group of those sales leaders, probably some other key stakeholders in the surrounding teams that work closely with them. And then my executive buyer is probably going to be our CRO or or somebody in like the C-suite. So I would approach this in a similar way. I would approach a sale. And obviously this is easier for me. This is kind of perfect world, but they're my customer. Who's the first person, Robbie, that you want to talk to like in a perfect world at a company you're trying to sell to? 
You asking me that question? I'm asking you. Oh, so if yeah. if I'm a seller and I'm trying to, yeah. you're telling me if I'm trying to engage a potential buyer, who's the person I want to talk to? Yeah, yeah. Ideally, the decision maker. Right. Exactly. So that would be step one for me when I when I get into an organization. So I'd find that executive buyer, the person who's going to ultimately be signing off on the program. And I think that there are a few key questions that. I would want to make sure I definitely get answered. That's going to help set up the entire process of me building a program. And I've got a couple of those questions. I can share them with you. And then also happy to hear if you have any thoughts on that too. But I'd get in front of the executive buyer and I would basically ask, what does success look like for you? You know, what's going to knock this out of the park? Another key piece of information I'd want to get is what metrics are you going to look at to judge the success of this program? because then I'm going to build my entire program around hitting those metrics. Another thing that I've learned to ask because I haven't, and it's kind of bit me later, is what are some non-negotiables for you when it comes to creating this new onboarding program? You know, what, are, what do they already have in mind that they need to see? And then who needs to be involved in the creation of the program and the build out of this? And who do you need to see kind of green-lighted from this before you'll sign off on it? And I think I would start there and then there's tons of other questions i would want to ask to get information out of them you know it's interesting when you asked me that question i was like is this a is this a trick question but you know what's funny is <laughs> no you know what's funny is is i still do agree with what i said around you would want to connect with the decision maker but some of the most some of the most impactful sales that I've made personally and the ones where the sales cycle has been the shortest is where I have a relationship mm -hmm. with a key influencer or champion already who knows the decision maker and can give me an insight into behind closed doors, what makes them tick, what's important for them right now and all that good stuff. So flipping that back is would you go to any of the sellers on the ground who also knows what that person wants and also maybe have a different perspective as to what they need? Totally. And I think that's a great point. And that would just be kind of step one. So I understand what the kind of doing air quotes buying process yeah. looks like. So I need to know kind of what they're looking for, for an ultimate yes. But absolutely, I would do what I would almost call a discovery roadshow. And I would talk to everybody that you know, that decision maker told me needs to be involved. And then anybody and everybody that I could kind of get my hands on to have a conversation with. And I'd want to talk to new and tenured sellers. I'd want to talk to high performing sellers, people that aren't doing well, talk to managers, new, tenured, successful, maybe struggling, all of the surrounding teams that work closely with sales. I mean, I think there's so many. And I think that discovery is definitely the, the first and most important step as it is in a sales process. I love the word tenured because the truth is, is if somebody's still in their honeymoon phase, they may not be able just yet to see the blind spot or have had enough time to see some of the things that need working on in an organization. So I love that you yeah. said that. And once you do that discovery roadshow and then you've mapped out, okay, this is what success looks like. This is what needs to be done in order to achieve that. How would you figure out the exact metric to measure to know when has that been achieved? When's that been achieved? Right. I think that that would go back to the metrics that I learned throughout this kind of buying process. Okay. 
of what they're looking for to make it successful. And then I would metric metric it against that. And so that can be a lot of different things depending on the company. It can be ramp time. It can be certain KPIs that they're tracking. So how many meetings or how many opportunities are you adding to your pipeline? How many use cases are you creating? Just kind of depends on the company. But if I'm tied to those metrics, you better believe I'm I'm onboarding our sellers to hit those and then tracking it on the back end, however that that looks. Beautiful. Beautiful. I like it. I like it. And I suppose it leads to the question of how long should the program be? And this is such a question which poses so much debate because you see people just say, okay, it's going to be 30 days, 60 days or 90 days. But then when you ask why, it's like, uh, I don't know, I, I hear onboarding programs are around that time. So how are you understanding the length of this program, uh, meaning how long it should be? How are you going about coming to that conclusion? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I also think it depends on other support roles that you have in your organization. So if you have a field enablement team that's responsible for ongoing enablement, it's a little bit easier to you know, say, we're going to do the first 90 days. These are the topics we're going to cover. We're going to test them, certify them on these. And here's where you guys pick up the pieces in, in field enablement. So I think it's a little bit easier to be definitive. I think if you don't have ongoing support, then I, to me, onboarding is a longer journey. And that's when you're going to hit maybe like the six month mark, because typically a, a seller ramps in between six, nine, 12 months. So if you don't have any more support, I would say six months. Honestly, it's a lot of work for you, but you kind of have to go a little bit longer. If you do have that ongoing support, I think three months, I think 90 days, again, and just having clear a clear vision of what you're going to cover and then what you're kind of passing off to. But that is hard figuring out the right time. I think it's also hard for somebody to manage the expectations of leadership to let them know, look, I've got five new enterprise reps joining. They're not going to get ramped up in 90 days. That's not how it works, right? So you're trying to educate that this could be a nine-month process to a year and they want results tomorrow. So what's your go-to for being able to manage those conversations up the chain and then down the chain? Ooh, that is a good question too. Yes, you're right. Because through that whole discovery process at the beginning, you're talking to so many different people and you're not going to get the same answer from everybody. So yeah, some people are going to want a really a faster quote ramp time. Some people might be okay with a little bit longer. And again, I think that's where you need that executive alignment from the top. And what's decided there, I think needs to then be communicated down. Mm. And so that's kind of how I would position it to them. Like, you know, you guys are the executive leadership team. The managers are going to follow suit. We need to have kind of a united front of, of what the reasonable expectations are. And then you can always iterate from there. I mean, you could create this amazing sales onboarding program and people are just hitting the ground running. And then they're like, Ooh, you know, you crushed that. Let's bring it down. But I think you definitely want to set realistic expectations and kind of get everybody on the same page. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I think realistic expectations is key versus when you're new to a company, it's easy to be overly optimistic because you want to impress, right? You're going to be like, yeah, we can, we can do of this course. in 60 days, but actually it may be 180, which is more ris realistic rather. So I love that. I love that. And yeah. you mentioned, look, if you've got a field enablement team who are looking at more ongoing training, 
it can be different too if you're running it solo. And I suppose in either of those scenarios, if you've got the topics that you want to cover, that you've been told you know, need to be covered, prospecting, negotiation, storytelling, uh, you know, how to demo, all that stuff, who delivers those modules? Are you doing it? Are your best sellers doing it? Are you hiring external consultants? Who's putting together the content for that training? Mm. I've done all of those or a mix of them of what you just mentioned before. I've, you know, I've done it where I'm doing the teaching, we're running discovery, objection handling, closing, product trainings, all that kind of stuff. But to me, the the best output is when you work closely with your top sellers and your top sales leaders. And that's where I've seen the most success is getting people who are in their shoes. They have these conversations every day and they're almost the ones creating and running the trainings. Now, is that scalable always? It depends. Depends on how often you're running the trainings, what the format looks like. But what I've seen the best results, it's been from the people who are doing the job and doing it well. So I personally like to tap sales, top sellers, top managers. And what we've done in the past is created a training advisory committee. And so we had the different topics that were top of mind from sales leadership. And we kind of pushed it out to managers in the field and said, okay, of these topics, who comes to mind? Like, who are some of the, the best people to run a discovery? Who are your best objection handlers? Who are your closers? And they almost saw it as this honor to be on the, the training advisory committee where they got to, you know, feel all important and come in and, and talk to the new hires and get to kind of like bestow their wisdom. So all that to say, I think that's kind of, I think that's the best approach in that scenario. Cut. Pause or whatever we need to say for me to get your attention. Because before we get back to the show, I have some breaking news. Okay, listen, ladies and gents, feature selling is dead and story selling is alive. Because if you really want to build trust, stand out and close more deals in a recession, then you need to try something new so you can drive your company to a world of efficiency and profitability. And that's exactly why I've opened up many slots this year for different companies to partner with me for implementing my story selling framework inside of their sales process. Now, the outcomes are all the good stuff. I'm talking about increasing average order value, collapsing time inside of your sales cycle and driving win rates. But more importantly, transforming your team to sell in a way that really focuses on human connection. And hey, that's what I'm all about. So if you're nodding your head right now, then head on down to theravirajani.com forward slash contact to book your complimentary discovery call to see if there's alignment. And hey, if there is, great. And if there's not, that's cool too. I'll see you on the other side. I love the idea of having a committee and I love the idea of empowering actual individual sellers who are in the trenches and leaders who are managing these people to really dictate what type of content goes into it. Because I suppose the worst thing could be is if you hire a consultant who charges you a ton of money to do this, but they don't take the time to personalize the training. It's very cookie cutter. And you're like, oh, like that sucks. They don't get our organization. So I like what you said there. You know, that could be a great fit for people. And on that topic of scale, let's say 
if you've run it for 90 days, six months, and you're realizing that, hold on, the content on prospecting is crushing it. We need to scale it because this leader and seller can't be delivering these trainings live every single month. It's just too much for them. Do you record the trainings and put it into an LMS? Like, what would you do to scale that? Yeah, and I think that this is this is changing, and I think for the better with access to things like TikTok, right? And on Instagram, you've got your short little reels that I think are ninety seconds max. So people do want to consume that bite size information. And I, I've recently run some AE interviews, just kind of asking them, how do you learn best? Like, what kind of format would you like this information? And a lot of people did tell me quick how-to videos, whether it's how do I enter an opportunity in Salesforce? You know, that is something that I don't think we need to spend instructor-led training time on, right? Like, that can be a bite-sized learning um, that you can do really quickly. So I think that creating these quick how-tos are super important. Having a library of that, that's just all in one place, easily accessible. Reps can kind of figure out these answers on their own. And the other thing that I heard is, you know, they're like, I am brand new at this company. I just left my last job where I was cushy. I knew how to run the sales process. I knew my customers. I knew my products, all this stuff. And it's intimidating to come to a new place and have to learn all of that over again. I don't want to have to guess or try to do all of this work on my own. And so what I've heard is they really want more like scripting. Like, can you just give it to me in a very easy to read format, something that I can just kind of repeat, how-to guides, things like that. So I think a combo of the two of those, it definitely helps with scale. And I think reps prefer to kind of have that to do on their own anyways. Well, you pose... I suppose an interesting question, I'll tell you what's coming up for me as you were talking, is one of the challenges a lot of enablement leaders will tell me that they have is, is how can they create a training which helps the newbie who's new to the world of sales, as well as serves the seasoned sales rep who has been you know, in the game for 20 years? How can you create something that serves the both of them? Do you have any thoughts on how you'd do that? As far as sales onboarding? Yeah. New AEs. Well, it's funny you say that because everywhere that I've been, and everybody can correct me if if they've seen differently, but you always hit a point where leadership and managers say, we got to go back to basics. Mm. And I think that's almost like a comfort zone that people get into where you start to forget how to do some of the basics, like a good discovery, you know, like really thorough pre-call planning and making sure you're coming into those calls with a good point of view, right? So a lot of the trainings that we do in onboarding that we do really well end up getting the attention of managers saying, hey, I've got some tenured sellers here. They'd really benefit to go through your sales boot camp. And it's not embarrassing. It's it's nothing like that. It's just kind of a good refresher of back to the basics. Here's what good looks like. And so, yeah, I think you can get different audiences to, to get a lot out of that. I love that. And I also think if you're hiring people who, even though might be veterans, but truly have the mindset of being a student for life, they, they're not going to complain with regards to getting that training. They're going to be like, oh my God, yes, I get to go deeper right. in certain areas. And I don't know about you, Whitney, but every time I'm going deep on the basics in anything, 
it's like, ah, I don't do that anymore. That's that. Why am right. I not doing that? And it's a great reminder. So I'm with you. Yeah. And it's funny. I, as a part of those AE interviews I was doing, one of the questions I like to ask mm. was, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you started? And I heard this from multiple AEs that they said, I almost wish I knew less now. Mm. Because the more that they know now, the more they start to overcomplicate it in their minds, the more they're overthinking the conversations that they're having with their customers. And they were saying, you know, when I was new and I was starting out in the discovery, I didn't really know anything. So it was much easier to ask those open-ended questions, be super curious. And that's an example of just a very basic discovery skill that I think we start to get nervous and overcomplicate the more tenured we get which is kind of funny so true so true and i don't know where the quote comes from or who said it but it's the idea that the more that we learn and the more that we think we know we end up realizing how little we know because there's so much depth in every topic i think the biggest mistake we can make is thinking we know everything Oh, gosh, yeah. Schoolboy error. Schoolboy error. Okay, so, ladies and gents, Whitney <laughs> mm -hmm. has gone through the process of shifting her mindset and the company's mindset when she joins as to really figuring out, okay, how are we going to do this? What questions are we going to ask? And then also figure out what a world-class sales onboarding program looks like in the eyes of the people that she's partnering with internally and reporting to. Then she's ultimately going on a discovery roadshow to figure out exactly what content is going to go going to go rather into the actual program. And she's using the top sellers and the top leaders to go out there and build it and scale it. Now it's ready, Whitney, and it's out in the market or out internally rather for, I don't know, 30, 60 days. How are you measuring the effectiveness on it? And how quickly are you iterating? Yes. So like I said, I'm iterating quick because I want to fail fast. I want to figure out what topics are landing, you know, how we're teaching these different topics, what's working, what's not. And I think it's important to pivot. So definitely figuring that out quickly early on and changing and how I'm figuring out if it's working, I think are through a couple of different ways. The most basic that I think everybody hopefully does is surveys. You know, we implement surveys from pretty much like the first week when they started the company, you know, how was your introduction? Because culture to a lot of people is so important. Did I feel welcome? Did I make the right choice? What have I done? <laughs> you know, you want to kind of avoid those and, and figure out how, how people are feeling. And then you probably have a lot of different modes of learning throughout the onboarding process, whether it is e-learning based, instruct virtual instructor-led trainings. You've assigned them a mentor. They're doing sign-offs with their managers, things like that. You want to survey them and just kind of see, is this resonating? Is this applicable? Are there topics that we're not covering that you know have been top of mind that you wish we would? So surveying as, as much as we can, but at the right times. And then the other thing I think is important is running sort of tests that are written that kind of give you an idea of, are they actually understanding some of the more technical processes, how we're engaging our customers, things like that to kind of benchmark for our managers as almost like a manager handoff to say, you know, your AEs are scoring maybe really high on the sales skills. They're struggling a little bit more on the technical side of the business. 
things that you should keep an eye on, you know, after 90 days. The other thing that we do too is certifications. So I think the the best model in sales onboarding is a learn, see, do, right? There is some sort of teaching that you have to do. They need to see what good looks like, and then they actually have to do it themselves. And so running these certifications where they're actually, maybe it's conducting a first call discovery, or they're delivering a point of view, and having a pretty rigorous certification process and rubric of where they get graded, I think is really important. And it's also important to realize that people can go through it a couple of times. So if you don't pass it that first time, it's not supposed to be a ding to you. It's supposed to say, hey, you know, there's just some things to work on. We want to make sure that you're comfortable in front of the customers and you're getting the most out of these conversations. Let's run it again. So I think that those three things are probably going to be the most important. And again, it, it kind of gives you a good manager report card, if you will, to kind of pass along to the manager so they know where their AEs are doing well and where they can continue to work on. I love the idea of the rubric testing and certification. I remember during my time in, you know, sales leadership, you know, in the world of early stage mm-hmm. startups, you don't really have, you don't really have the opportunity for enablement early on, right? You don't have the opportunity to really build out something with a ton of resources. And I remember one of the things that, you know, we focused on was that exact scorecard of different areas that we felt were important to really ramp up a seller and get them out in the field. One of the areas I found often the weakest was presentation skills. It was funny. It was somebody can have the knowledge, they can understand in theory how something should work, but when they're asked to present a piece of information, the confidence, the storytelling, the ability to be comfortable in one's skin. That was something I often felt lacked. I don't know if you've seen something similar like that internally. All the time. And I think for myself as well. I mean, it's a very humbling experience to go through the learn and the see part and then actually have to do it. It's almost like going through a public speaking class where the teacher's talking to you about how to be an amazing public speaker. They give you these speeches to watch and to read. And you're like, wow, that, wow, that's so amazing. But then you never have to do it yourself. Yeah. Or the second you have to, you know, you realize, okay, there's a lot of nerves there. I'm not sure exactly what to say. What if I forget mm-hmm. my lines or the point I want to make? So yes, I see it. I see it all the time. And, and often it's with experienced sellers, I think too, because almost the pressure is a little bit higher, right? You we hired you because you're really experienced. You have run discoveries and done POVs your entire careers. And then the second you kind of get out of that comfort zone and you don't know exactly what to say, and you, maybe you don't know exactly the product you're selling or the persona who you're selling to, it gets nerve wracking. And so that's why we like to spend a lot of time on the do of, all right, we've talked about it. You've seen it. Let's give it a try. And we do try to create a very safe environment where it's kind of a judge-free zone. I know it's easier said than done, but try to really create a fun, relaxed environment. And I think that that definitely plays a huge role in sellers ramping. Honestly, it's just kind of like the culture that you surround them with. Totally. I think if somebody knows that it's okay to make mistakes and they're not going to be judged 
they can think more freely. They have more creativity. There's higher levels of trust. It's just, it's just such a game changer. So yeah, I love that final piece around psychological safety in an organization because the truth is if somebody feels like they're going to fail something and then they're going to get fired the next day, you'll never see the best out of them. You just won't see that. No, totally. And, and that's almost like how I like to tee up sessions like that is, you know, hey guys, I had to do this technical whiteboard as well. I was panicked. You know, I spent a ton of time preparing for it. When I got in there, I was all shaky and nervous. And then, you know, you kind of realize that these are your peers. Everybody's in your same shoes. It's not a huge deal. Like you're going to be great. And if not, this is a safe place to kind of fail. So that's definitely something that I like to do too in, in trainings. I love that piece of storytelling, you know, showcasing your vulnerability so they realize that you are human as well and that it's okay to make mistakes. I think that's super important and I love that. I love that, my friend. You know, final question for you is, well, actually, no, not final. I've got one more after that, but uh, I've got a penultimate, (laughs) penultimate, right? Penultimate question for you is, is how... You know, after the first 90 days, it's out there, you're iterating and tweaking it. How often would you revisit that training with the the reps as they go through their career in organization? Would you recertify them on the basics every six months? Like, how do you ensure they never lose sight of being a student for life? Absolutely. And I think that that's where it's important if you do have a field enablement team to work closely with them on some of those topics where you're recertifying six, nine months, a year down the line. Mm. And again, if it's just you kind of running it solo or it's just kind of the onboarding team that's having to do it all, same thing. I think you should do that. And that's actually a request that I've gotten from a number of sellers is I almost wish that there was this masterclass at six months because we stop at 90 days right now where we could revisit some of those topics or some of the new topics that we haven't even gotten to in our sales process and recertify. So it's something that it's not comfortable. Every AE probably hates to certify. I don't know many that are like, you know, chomping at the bit to do it, but they know that they need it. And I think they realize that they want to be good. And so it's helpful. So yes, recertifications are important. And I think to scale those there's a lot of really cool resources out there, such as like recording yourself on Slack, sending it in a you know curated Slack channel, having peers grade you type of thing or your manager or a mentor. So I think there are ways to scale certification as well to make it a little bit easier on the training team. I like it, my friend. And I actually wish I had more time to talk about some of the mistakes that you've made and how you would do it differently. So maybe that's for round two. (laughs) All right. Maybe that's for round two. There we go. (laughs) Ladies and gents, Whitney Newman. Now, before I let you go, my friend, the show is called The Influential Communicator, as you know. And I always like to ask guests, who is somebody that you look up to as an influential communicator and why? Oh, that is a really. That's a really great question. And is it totally cliche if I say my mom? No, not cliche. Oh, I've never had anyone say that. So, oh my gosh, go for it. Oh, really? Yeah, never had that. Okay. I think that, I guess that's a little tough because nobody knows how she public speaks, but just like the relatability between our personalities, I think uh, makes it somebody that I can look up to. Yeah. And She's a big preparer before she would ever present. She worked for the government for 35 years, having to talk to some pretty 
high level government officials and things like that. And, and so I just think that her ability to, what did she say? She always says, fake it till you make it. And that's something that she's kind of resonated with me is, you know, if you get up there and you give off a confident persona, people are going to believe it. And so that's just something that I've tried to kind of embody throughout my life is, is kind of a confidence, whether I actually think it or not, try to kind of embody that. Well, there we have it. Ladies and gents, we need to we need to go find Whitney Newman's mum, and we need to go follow her on LinkedIn <laughs> and check out all her stuff. You know what I'm saying? Oh but my goodness! Is she is she on LinkedIn or is she out there in the world of social media? I think she's terrified of social media. She's okay. on LinkedIn, but it, there's not much there. All right, okay, we'll, we'll we'll leave her out of it. We'll leave her out of it. We we, we won't yeah. put her LinkedIn username <laughs> in the show notes. But my friend, let's talk about where people can learn more about you, Databricks, and all of that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. LinkedIn, definitely reach out, send me a message, connect with me. Would love that. Databricks, it's an amazing company, huge up and coming. If you want to learn more about it, databricks.com. We have a ton of resources there, videos where you can hear from clients that use us. And yeah, just would would love to connect and learn from you guys on what you think is going to make a great sales onboarding program. Um, Always a student. Awesome. Awesome. And we will put the link to the Databricks website inside of the show notes if people want to learn exactly what the company does and how or if it can help them. So ladies and gents, appreciate your time, energy and attention because I don't take that for granted. You know what I'm saying? I don't take that for granted. All right. So I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Peace. I have a question for you, my friend. And that question is, is what would it take to have you subscribe to the Influential Communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice? Because I tell you what, my friend, my big mission is to help B2B sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without without suppressing their personality and disowning their value. So hey, the more the word gets out about this podcast, the more people we can gather on this mission. So if you could support me, then hey, that would be dope. And if not, that's dope too. Either way, I got love for you. All right, I'll see you on the other side.